Alec Ross worked in the White House as a senior policy advisor to Hillary Clinton. His book, Industries of the Future, explores the biggest technological opportunities and threats to our society. The industries addressed in this book include robotics, genetics, and cybersecurity. Technological familiarity is increasingly correlated with an individual's optimism. Cyber warfare presents attack vectors that are difficult to insulate against. Arguments against surveillance center disproportionately on governmental surveillance rather than that of the private sector. In our conversation, Alec discusses these topics and many others. Before we get to that episode, I want to say a few quick announcements. The Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called Software Daily. We're building an open source news and information site about software. And if you're a web developer, particularly if you're working with React.js or Node.js or anything else, JS or even Rails or whatever other web technologies you're interested in, check out the Software Daily repo. You can find it by going to softwaredaily.com. It's being run by Jeff Tribble who is uh, a great developer. He set up a Slack channel to discuss the ideas and the management of software daily. Um, and if you're interested in becoming a host or checking out my Twitter account, sending me an email, please send me an email. I would love to hear from you. Signing up for the Software Engineering Daily newsletter, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com. So check out Software Daily. Check out softwareengineeringdaily.com. These two sites are your call to action uh, for today. Alec Ross is the author of The Industries of the Future. Alec, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. It's great to be here. Your book is The Industries of the Future, and it covers robotics and genetics and software, and it's written from your standpoint as a former policy advisor working with Hillary Clinton. Most of the guests on this show are engineers that are working on a particular technology up close, like a database or a programming language, but your book is more about policy and the higher level view. So with that in mind, I'm curious how your perception of the industries of the future compares with the technologists that you met with during the time leading up to the publication of this book. Well, I appreciate your asking that, Jeff. You know, my own background really is is much more like the listener. Uh, you know, I, I started a company in a basement when I was 28 years old and sort of focused myself as a heads-down technologist and executive for a number of years who was pulled into the policy world. You know, it's, I, I didn't sort of begin my career, uh, you know, with a white shirt and red tie on. Uh, but having said that, I, I did go from entrepreneurship and working as a techie into this crazy world of politics and policy, running tech and media policy for Obama's first campaign and then working for Hillary Clinton for four years as her innovation advisor, though I should note I did not her, innovate her email. That was somebody else. Uh, but to, to answer your question directly, how did it relate to the perspective of most people who might be grinding 60 hours a week on one technology or spending all their time coding? You know, I think that part of what I tried to do with this was give the kind of work that they are doing some global context. And to show how it interrelates, not just with other technologies and industries, but how all this shakes out on a 196-country chessboard. So I really I tried to bring the world of technology and technologists together with the world of public policy. And, and I think people on both sides of that divide have enjoyed it so far. There's an undercurrent in the book that 
it seems like an individual's familiarity with technology is a proxy for how optimistic that person is about the future. And this is true whether you're talking about uh, people from state to state across the United States or in individual places within the state, or if you're just talking about uh, countries, uh, localities. It really seems like the familiarity with technology is is directly parallel with how optimistic a person is. Do you think that's accurate? I do think it's accurate. You know, engineers are builders. Engineers are people who, if they see a problem, they immediately go into thinking about how to solve it. Uh, they don't sit there and, you know, you know, clench their fists and stomp up and down and and start thinking about who to blame for the problem and pissing and moaning about it. They they try to figure out how they can come up with a solution. I think that's a mindset generally. Uh, and, you know, I do think that we are in a world right now where th- there are builders and breakers. And I feel like in the software community and in the engineering community, there tends to be a heavier concentration of builders. And I think that the optimism flows from that mindset of, you know, what I do with my career and what I do with my life is I build things and I solve problems. Mm-hmm. And given that proclivity towards optimism that you have, I think you call yourself a practical optimist or something like that. The fact that you are somewhat worried about cyber warfare, I think, makes it all the more salient of a concern. Um, there was this movie called Zero Days that recently came out by Alex Gibney, and he talked about Stuxnet and the potential for cyber warfare that I recently saw. Uh, what are the attack vectors of cyber warfare that you are most worried about? I am most worried about integrity attacks. You know, if you were to oversimplify, you could say that there are three kinds of cyber attacks, confidentiality attacks, availability attacks, and integrity attacks. And historically, integrity attacks, attacks that don't just get surreptitious access to a system, but which alter the data within the system or break the system. Historically, those have been developed by countries, by federal governments, with you know enormous financial resources and enormous sophistication but the problem is that unlike shooting a bullet where if you shoot a bullet you can't reshoot that shoot that bullet or a hand grenade once you pull the pin and throw the grenade and it blows up it can't be reassembled and you know used to kill anybody else malware is different and what i worry about is that with with malignant code like what was used for Stuxnet, is that can be repurposed by institutions or individuals with a lot less sophistication than the great big government that developed it. And, and it's, 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 so it's sort of like giving a weapon uh, that, that cost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and that would, normally would have taken an army to operate and suddenly a little ragtag gang of people can use it. And so I am very concerned about the increasing ability of non-state actors to be able to to launch integrity attacks. Well, one aspect of Stuxnet is that it actually took, I think, four or five uh, consecutive, or I'm sorry, uh, concurrent zero-day uh, um, bugs that uh, were required in order to uh, fully have it, you know, uh, do the you know do its mission with the effectiveness that it ultimately did. Um, 
and those you know zero day exploits are hundreds of thousand dollars each so i mean even if it was reduced uh, from hundreds of millions to hundreds of thousands um you know it's, i guess it is still somewhat cost prohibitive and along with that there is the all of the development resources that went into it whether you're talking about a t- uh, you know a large team of of uh, Russian technologists or a large team of people working at the NSA or whatever it is, there is the, still the development cost uh, to getting this highly complex complex coordination of, uh, of something as complex as Stuxnet. Is it really that replicable? Did Stuxnet really lay out an effective enough blueprint that it can be replicated with lower than hi- the highly prohibitive development costs that Stuxnet incurred? So I have to be, I am very constrained in what I can say about Stuxnet specifically, uh, just because I myself signed secrecy agreements that I am still bound to, even though I'm no longer in government. So let me speak about it sort of generically, you know, malware like Stuxnet. Yeah, I, I, you know, the problem is that the, even though it still requires considerable resources and sophistication and development capabilities, The problem is the slope on the graph. Every six months, it is more accessible. It's more affordable. Uh, The development resources are more available and less costly. So, you know, I don't think we're going to wake up tomorrow and there is going to be malware like Stuxnet um, being sort of fired around the world. But the slope on the graph is such that it's ever more accessible. Um, and, and this is what worries me. And part of why, look, as you said, I'm a realistic optimist. I'm, I'm well short of utopian, but I'm an optimist. But the darkest part of my book, The Industries of the Future, is the section on the weaponization of code. And the reason for that is I spent way too much time in that charming little windowless room called the White House Situation Room, witnessing what we averted and getting to hear the perspective of the NSA, the Department of Defense, and others about what we were contending with. And, you know, we missed the worst of it. Certainly while I was in government and while I had that scene in the White House Situation Room. And I just feel like we're, we're not always going to miss. They're not always going to miss. And so this is where, you know, I do think, I do think the weaponization of code is the most significant development in conflict since the weaponization of fissile material, the difference being that developing a nuclear weapon requires the scarcest of scarce scientific talent and transuranium elements, where the weaponization of code is simply ever more accessible. So I think maybe five or ten years ago, this was a little more controversial, like how much time and and money should we be spending on improving our resilience to cyber attacks. Today, it's not so controversial what are the steps that are being taken? Are we decentralizing the power grid or decentralizing our banking systems so that there, there, there are fewer vulnerabilities and points of failure? I mean, it seems like this is such a, uh, a densely, these are densely packed areas that are really hard to disentangle um, and separate from becoming highly vulnerable points of weakness. So there are a series of technical things that can and are being done, but let me take it up a notch. Um, Let me take it sort of up a level. What I think is more important than anything being done technically is the diplomatic work. It's working with governments like China's 
to, you know, try to establish some norms and some rules of the road in the cyber domain. You know, in the 1950s and 1950s through 1970s, there was a treaty making system developed for nuclear weapons. Uh, You know, that helped keep us from obliterating each other. And the reason for it was this concept of mutually assured destruction. The idea that the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics in the United States of America uh, could and should both have nuclear weapons, but there ought to be some structures and strictures in place to govern how they're used, to restrict and restrain how they might be used. Look, this kept us from killing each other. Similarly, I think that a lot of the nation states out there with the greatest capabilities from the UK to Israel to China to the United States, note, I do not say Russia because they are just a really bad actor in this space. But I I feel like there is an increasing recognition that the development and use of very powerful malware hurts us all. Um, And the United States is never going to unilaterally disarm. It's not going to disarm at all. But what I do think serves us all well is having agreements between countries about what we will and won't do. And this accompanying all the technical things that we can do to protect systems, uh, I think, is what's going to keep us from having critical infrastructure compromised. So I hear two things there. I hear the actual uh, discussions then diplomacy that you need to have with these different countries, but also the fact that there is some notion of mutually assured destruction, so we have uh, a shared interest. Why is the risk-reward calculus between America and China different than that of America and Russia? It's a great question. It's really simple. China is fully entangled in our economic system. So let's say somebody compromises the trading systems for NASDAQ, okay? And the market goes down 5%. The Chinese are such vast equity holders in American business that, that it hits them. It doesn't hit them as hard as it hits us, but it hits them hard. Uh, is, that is why I believe, for example, after North Korea cyber attacked Sony, uh, I think there was very clear cooperation between the United States and China to turn the lights out in, in North Korea, to turn off the internet for a day. The only way North Korea accesses the internet is through a Chinese system. When that went black, it was both the United States and China saying, if you engage in this kind of behavior, we're going to turn the lights out and you North Korean elites are not going to be able to watch any more porn. The difference between the United States and Chinese who have what I would call shared economic interests is that Russia is now essentially divorced from our economic system. You know, ever since we declared, ever since we put sanctions on Russia for unlawfully invading Ukraine, you know, ever since Vladimir Putin uh, took control of the presidency again, he really is running his own offense. And he and and Russian business interests are no longer really as entangled into sort of the finance systems of London and New York as the Chinese are. I mean, they really have a commodities-based economy. And from Putin's standpoint, anything that hurts the United States is good. Anything that weakens the United States economically is good. 
that's why all of the Russian hackers are off the leash. And you know, that's why you know, some of the scariest cyber attacks that have taken place in America, I'll point to the cyber attacks against our banks in the summer of 2014, which nearly caused enormous problems. President Obama was getting daily briefings on them. Those came from Russian hackers that were off the leash. And they were taken off the leash by Putin because he saw anything that hurt America and American economic interests as being good for Russia. So, you know, you're talking about a specific attack that we were able to attribute to Russia. And I've heard that this question of attribution can sometimes be extremely ambiguous how good is the United States intelligence at attributing attacks like that? Does it is it does it depend on how big the attack is? Is it harder to attribute smaller attacks? Like how how good is the sophistication there? So one of the reasons why there tend to be very different diagnoses that come from, say, the U.S. government, you know, parentheses NSA slash FBI close parentheses versus you know that which comes from the private sector sometimes is. There are just certain capabilities that exist inside Fort Meade, Maryland at the NSA that don't exist elsewhere. Uh, and sometimes there will actually be squabbles from you know, the private sector cyber community about attribution, and then they'll later get access to some of the same kind of data that the NSA had access to in real time. Um, I think the NSA, I mean, look, we all now know, we all now know because of Edward Snowden some of the capabilities they exist there. The the engineers and the analysts and the, the physical capabilities that exist at the NSA are very, very impressive. And while attribution can never can rarely be one hundred percent when you know the, what I got from them, what I saw from them and what, what they demonstrated, at least the time I was in government, was that their capabilities were quite substantial. And when assertions of, at, of attribution are made, as was made against the North Koreans regarding the Sony hack, I tend to believe them. So while we're on the topic of the NSA, I, I am, I'm in agreement with you that the, the, the technologies developed by the NSA are quite impressive. And I think you know, our society, particularly America, has kind of an addiction to the idea that surveillance technology leads to a world as depicted in 1984, where we are living these sterile black and white lives. And in reality, the types of technologies that are associated with these surveillance things lead to us being more creative, more communicative, weirder. And the surveillance technologies do uh, keep us safer. Um, I mean, do you think our society has an unhealthy addiction to the idea that as we have more surve- surveillance, we are becoming more like the world of 1984? You know, I have I have a sort of a funny view on this. Uh, I think that people in the United States, let me constrain this to the U.S. for a second. I think we worry too much about surveillance and not enough about surveillance. Uh, you know, having been in government, I know that what the NSA ca- cares about are acts of terror. Um, the NSA doesn't care if you're paying your taxes or not. They don't care who you're sleeping with. They don't care about any of these little details in our lives. All they are there to do is keep America and Americans safe. By contrast, uh, surveillance, the, the 
gathering of information from everyday people, not from above, but from below. You know, every all of us now have video-enabled mobile phones in our pockets. If anything, I think we worry too little about surveillance. Over the next four years, we're going to go from a world of 16 billion networked devices to 40 billion networked devices. And that's largely going to put in place an information capture infrastructure around the world that has nothing to do with surveillance, but rather, you know, individuals and companies being able to suck up information. And, you know, look, I am not, you know, I am not from the tinfoil hat crowd on this. But what I would simply say is that I think that people worry too much about surveillance. They worry too much about what central governments are doing and too little about what anybody and everybody with a video-enabled mobile phone can do. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I want to respect your time. We're, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, and I want to talk more about industries. And one area of industry that is futuristic but is in the present is something like Amazon. Amazon Web Services specifically is what I think about. Um, you know, Today, some large percentage of the internet runs on Amazon Web Services. I can also think of other giant corporations that we are highly dependent on. When does an internet company become too big to fail? That's a great question. You know, I do think that there's there have been sort of corrective mechanisms throughout the history of the internet uh, to keep this from to keep us from really getting to that point. I remember the cover of Time magazine, I think in 2000, and there was and the headline was The Final Battle for the Internet. That was what was on the cover. The Final Battle for the Internet. AOL versus Microsoft. Um, you know, as soon as somebody declares that the internet has been won, something changes. Now, I do believe that they're very powerful platform companies, Amazon among them. But what I do believe is that as soon as they make mistakes or slip up, there are these, the market uh, corrects. It both lifts up great innovation and it punishes mediocrity. So I, I I don't think we're close yet to the point where any of these companies are too big to fail. You think um, the, the Microsoft suit was a mistake? I don't because part of what they were doing is they were creating their own, you mean the Microsoft suit from the 1990s? Yes. Oh, I do not think it was a mistake because what they were doing is they were inhibiting uh, innovation. You know, th- what... Amazon, for example, is doing with Amazon Web Services is they have developed a very powerful product and brought it to market. But what they aren't doing is inhibiting the ability of others to create a competitive product. You know, what Microsoft was doing is they were destroying the ability of others to compete. Uh, You know, so I, I think that if any big platform company does something beyond just building great stuff, and capturing huge markets because of it. Um, if they go past that and actively gate out or destroy the offerings of others, then I think an antitrust action is reasonable. So what about the word monopoly? When should that be applied to internet companies? Not yet. I've never seen an I've never seen a monopoly on the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think Google is a monopoly. You know, I, I think that uh, if you don't like Google use Bing. If you don't like Bing, use you know something else. I just I, I simply don't buy that there are any monopolies yet. In part because 
there's always the ability to create a competitor. You know, search is probably the closest thing uh, to something that's become monopolistic. But as a technical matter, it is still very possible uh, for some kid in Bangalore to come up with a way of uh, identifying and distributing data in a way that could be competitive with Google's. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, it's it's not like a cable company where you can only do the trenching for cable one time into a home. Yeah. Or it's, you know, it's, the, as long as somebody has the ability to try to build something new, uh, I just, I don't believe it's monopolistic. So much of your book has this autobiographical thread of people that you grew up with where you're kind of talking about how these people have jobs that are very susceptible to automation. Obviously, much of the economy is susceptible to automation. And your book is something about, you know, how do we retrain these people? And, you know, I think some economists talk about there being really a lost generation of people who are going to lose their jobs to automation in the next five to 10 years, and they're not going to be able to retrain. They're going to be either demoralized or they're going to lack basic skills like typing or something else. What are the policies that you would like to see put in place to avoid this lost generation issue? So this is really hard. I mean, the the easier work, and it's not easy. But the easier work is to focus younger and to say, oh, well, we should look at vocational education and revamp that for the 21st century. Or, you know, we need to do more in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education. So we're doing too little to serve, to serve, to solve even the easiest problems here, which is today's youth, to make sure that they're focused on tomorrow. For the 48-year-old truck driver who might become a 60-year-old unemployed truck driver because of autonomous vehicles it's it's scary and in many some of those folks can be retrained many others cannot this is where we really need to look at our safety net um you know i am a capitalist i believe in the power importance of markets and i tend to be anti-regulation what i do believe though is that as we generate enormous amounts of wealth uh, as america creates more billionaires we have to make sure that we don't lose our safety net. And as this displacement does begin, we need to strengthen and raise the safety net. You know, look, this is part of why I'm, I'm so in favor of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, you know, if we went from a country of 47 million people without health insurance to, seven, to 60 million, to 70 million, to 80 million then we really would have two Americas. And things like the Affordable Care Act will ensure that that 60-year-old truck driver has that five years of Obamacare to get him in before he gets into Medicare. So I do think safety net programs are important. Have you seen a compelling implementation strategy for basic income? Not yet. And part of the reason for that is that it's only been, you know, it's only been tried in very, very wealthy, very redistributionist countries, you know, for example, in Denmark. And going back to Obamacare, if you look at the anger that came from the Affordable Care Act, it's hard for me to imagine something even more redistributionist, like a universal basic income being implemented in the United States. Now, that's not to say it won't happen. Uh, but what I do think is that the economy would have to get much worse 
you know, we have unemployment below 5% right now. The economy would have to get much worse simultaneous to the creation of an of ever more wealth for the 1%. So there would have to be this moment in time where both the 1% did spectacular, spectacularly better and you know, the bottom 30% of America did spectacularly worse. Those are the only conditions under which I could imagine a universal basic income being passed by the United States Congress and signed into law by its president. Okay, Alec, I want to thank you for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, there's plenty of, of the book that we did not cover, Bitcoin, genetics, government, and I highly recommend the audiobook version if people like your voice because it's one of the rare books that is read by the author, which was uh, fantastic. I, that always adds an extra seasoning to the, to the book. Yeah, well, look, I really, I really appreciate that. You know, I, ju- I just checked this morning, and apparently it's been reviewed over a thousand times on audible.com, which I thought was, which was pretty cool. Great. Okay. Well, Alec, thanks for making time. Listen, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. SafeGraph is building a company to securely monetize exhaust data. If you are amazingly entrepreneurial, you live in San Francisco, and you want to be one of the first five employees at SafeGraph, either as an engineer or a business development person, check out SafeGraph.com. Wow. 